Hey everybody, Cheryl Todd here from Gun Freedom Radio, and I am chatting today with my good friend Logan Medish. Logan is a historian and writer who runs High Caliber History and has worked for museums with the NRA, the Smithsonian Institute, and the National Park Service. Logan's work has been published in a variety of print and online outlets. He has served as a historic arms facilitator for Mysteries at the Museum, Gun Stories with Joe Montaigne, and Rifleman TV. Welcome to Gun Freedom Radio, Logan. Thank you, Cheryl. It's great to be back. Absolutely. So I could probably have you on every single day and never exhaust your personal knowledge of history as it pertains to firearms. And so anytime we get a chance to sit down and talk together, I really, I wish I could just kind of put my thinking cap on, sit back and let you run. Um, <laughs> because I just want to be a student, you know. But um, the one thing that was kind of on our minds lately is all the gun laws, everything's just words are being thrown around. And one of the phrases that we hear over and over is that there's just no way that our founding fathers would have ever possibly anticipated the kind of weaponry, right, that we have in our modern age. And so they couldn't have been thinking about things like repeating rifles uh, when they were crafting the Second Amendment and the wording uh, thereof that they, by the way, punctuated with uh, shall not be infringed. So mm. talk to us about the, the reality of that. Could our founding fathers have envisioned something as crazy as a repeating rifle? Sure. You know, not only could they, they did. Um, and, and they did it long before they drafted the Second Amendment. Uh, it was in the Second Continental Congress in 1777, in fact, that the first real push for the concept of a repeating rifle in the Continental Army was brought up. Uh, so how's that for, for uh, bringing repeaters in early? <laughs> Myth-busting right out of the gate. We're not That's even five right. minutes in and you're already busting myths with, uh, you know, how you know, people want to think that our founding fathers were just like these little waifs, you know, these one dimensional creatures who didn't live the multifaceted, dangerous, right, and uh, lives and have the foresight and forethought that they did. And you're showing us right here that uh, even with the tools themselves, the machinery themselves, uh, they had actually experienced these things um, that people want to debunk. So talk to us about those, those repeating rifles. What, tell, what can you tell us about those? Yeah, so it all starts with a, a gentleman. His name is Joseph Belton, uh, and he is a gunsmith in Philadelphia. And he writes a letter to the Continental Congress on April 11th, 1777. And he lets them know uh, that he has devised a new flintlock that can fire as many as 16 shots in 20 seconds. A flintlock? Uh, a flintlock. That can yeah. do that? That can do that. That's, That's what he was incredible. claiming. 16 shots, 20 seconds. Uh, and he said, I'm available to demonstrate this to you at any time. Well, the Continental Congress was obviously intrigued by this claim. 
Uh, and so they ordered a hundred examples of this gun. Think about that. They ordered a hundred examples. Uh, and so they authorized him to oversee the construction of new guns or the alteration of existing guns so that they could fire uh, those rounds. Uh, and they didn't even want him to push it as high as 16. They said, hey, even if you can do eight rounds, we'll be impressed, right? Um, and so they told him that he could, quote, receive a reasonable compensation for his trouble and be allowed all just and necessary expenses, end quote. Uh, because, of course, the government's always looking to pinch pennies, even back <laughs> in 1777. They weren't uh, then because they were like, wait a minute, you've got some <laughs> fabulous new invention and we're going to try 100, uh, 100 right out of the gate. Yeah, and that sounds great. Um, but money is always an issue when it comes to government. Yes. Um, and there was a quibble right away between Joseph Belton and the Congress on their definitions of a reasonable compensation. Uh, and so, he, yeah, imagine that, right? Uh, so Belton wanted to arm 100 soldiers with his invention and determine uh, with a panel of four military officers to choose two chosen by the Continental Congress and two of his choosing to determine how many men armed with his guns that they felt those men were equal to armed with single shot muskets. So for example, you know, a hundred of Belton's armed men were equivalent to 200 armed men, you know, doubling it or so on or so forth. So sounds simple enough, right? So let me take you off course for a second. So was he then therefore thinking, so I can get twice the amount that they would pay for a normal rifle because it's worth two men? Is that kind of where he was leaning or? Well, he, he wasn't even necessarily looking so much per rifle as he's looking per man, which is where it gets really, really crazy and what causes the, the confrontation. Okay. Um, yeah, so he says that if he can double the effectiveness, 100 men equaling 200 men, that he wants 1,000 pounds. And of course, the uh, exchange rate, you know, to put it into today's dollars and everything, uh, 1,000 pounds in 1777 is about 150,000 pounds today. And we're sitting at an exchange rate of, a, of uh, one pound to a dollar ten. So, you know, 160, 170 thousand dollars uh if he can double it wow. and he wants it to go up and up and up from there you know so if it's 300 then it's you know 2000 you can extrapolate uh and so he decided that this was going to be something he would make available to all 13 colonies and so if you're doing the math and you get all 13 states or all 13 colonies outfitting 100 men he'd get 13,000 pounds, which adjusted for uh, today's dollars is 1.9 million pounds um, or a little over $2 million. Nice yeah. payday. Nice payday. Um, he argued that arming 3,000 men or more with his guns created innumerable advantages on the battlefield and that doing so made his uh, rate of compensation, quote, vastly reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, and as such, his terms were non-negotiable. Uh, if Congress wanted to quibble with him in any way, he's done. He's absolutely done. Um, and so he sent off a letter to them saying, hey, take it or leave it. 
Uh, I could go either way. <laughs> I mean, but, he's the guy with the, the good equipment, right? And he's saying, right. you know, what, what are lives worth, right? right? What is victory worth? So he really was sitting in a strong negotiating position. He was. He was in a very strong position. Um, but he had a little bit of Thomas Paine's common sense running through his blood uh, because he must have immediately realized that his terms were kind of ridiculous. Uh, so the very next day, he wrote another letter. Uh, and he actually addressed this one specifically to John Hancock. And he lowered his fees. He cut them in half. So instead of a thousand pounds, you know, he just wants uh, five hundred to double, fifteen hundred to triple, two thousand to quadruple, and so forth. I figured cutting it in half would would suffice, right? Um, the Congress got his letter. They read it aloud to the body on May fifteenth, uh, and they dismissed it because of his quote extraordinary allowance. And, and this then, was the second one where he'd already, you know, kind of chopped it down a little bit? Yeah, he'd already cut the price in half. And they were like, yeah, no, still too much money. So they're like, all right, we're done. May 15th, we're done. And they didn't bother to reply to him. They figured, you know, no news. He'll get the hint and he'll go on his merry way. But they were wrong. He was determined. Uh, so that was May 15th on June 14th. He writes them another letter. Now he's up in the ante. He says that not only can these guns fire that many rounds, but that they'll be accurate out to 100 and even 200 yards, which is astounding out of these flintlock rifles at that time. And he said he'd be happy to demonstrate it to the Congress on the following Monday at 10 a.m. in the State House Yard, which, of course, today is known as Independence Hall on the green there in front of the state house. So he wants to go set up a 200 yard shooting range in front of Independence Hall. <laughs> he's, he's really, really pushing for this, right? Uh, but he doesn't get an answer. And so again, assuming that, hey, if we don't respond to this guy, maybe he'll just kind of bugger off and leave us alone. They were wrong. He writes him again on July 10th. Um, this time he's not so kind. He has decided he's not pulling any punches anymore. Uh, and in his letter, he claims that Great Britain regularly pays 500 pounds for these kind of services. And if that, quote, little island could afford such payments, surely this, quote, extensive continent could do the same. So he's, he's, he's really pushing his luck, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then he pushes it even further, though. Uh, in addition to that, he encloses a letter signed by some big-name individuals, including General Horatio Gates, Major General Benedict Arnold, before he becomes a turncoat, well-known scientist David Rittenhauer, uh, David Rittenhouse, sorry, uh, and others. And they all signed their names, claiming that his invention would be, quote, great service in the defense of lives, redoubts, ships, etc., and even in the field. And they felt that he was entitled to a handsome reward. Well, Congress finally got the hint that this dude wasn't going away if they just ignored him. Uh, so they were going to have to move quick on things. And in order to do that, they immediately pushed through his request to the Board of War, which was made up of five delegates. Uh, and among those five were future second president of the United States, John Adams, and Benjamin Harrison V, the father and great-grandfather of the ninth and 23rd presidents, respectively. Nine days later, July 19th, 
Congress gets word from the Board of War. And to Belton's dismay, they had completely decided that, nope, we are done. This is not something we're going to fund. His terms are absolutely unreasonable. Uh, let him know that this is, uh, this is kaput. He, he pushed his luck and he pushed it too far. And I, he finally got the hint uh, that Congress was not going to spend that kind of money on an experimental weapon. Um, and he doesn't bother to write again, or at least we assume he doesn't bother to write again. No correspondence beyond July 19th shows up between the Continental Congress and Belton. So it's, it's assumed that he finally took the hint uh, mm -hmm. and, and decided to, to move along. But where does that put us in terms of repeating rifles and the founding fathers. It's, mm -hmm. it, it makes you wonder, well, how does this apply, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's absolutely applicable, even though they didn't end up getting the guns because people are claiming, well, they couldn't have possibly known about repeating rifles. That's what we're trying to debunk here. Whether right. or not they actually received the guns and used them is a moot point. That doesn't matter. Right? Correct. It's the machinery, it's the technology that people want to say that, you know, there's no way that our founding fathers would have been able to project themselves into today and see things like <gasps> revolvers, right? And <gasps> right. AR-15s and, you know, those kinds of things that they would right. have been completely aghast and their minds would have been blown. And, and Belton's example, Joseph Belton's example, from history shows us, no, they wouldn't be aghast. It was just a matter of, he was a terrible and emotional negotiator and he yes. took his own deal before he had a chance to see it come to fruition. Exactly, you're exactly right. And because whether it's 1777 or 2019, the government's always looking to give the contract to the lowest bidder uh, and he unfortunately was the only bidder and still managed to price himself out of the deal. Uh, so he but, argued with himself in front of Congress via letters and, and lost, managed to lost. lose to himself. Yeah. You know, so it takes a special kind of individual, right? That's true. Um, but, but again, that's, that's all a moot point because here we are 14 years before the ratification of the bill of rights in 1791 in 1777, the founding fathers in Congress, on the record, say, hey, this guy's got a repeater. Let's order these guns from him. Boom. There it is. It's literally in black and white. You can't argue with it. Um, people will try, uh, but they shouldn't because facts are facts. Do you think that if there was a way to cut through all of the, I think, willful ignorance that's out there. Um, do you think that, that it would make a difference? Or do you think that people are just so set in what they think they know and just so set that they think that like ARs are just this horrible, evil creation? Um, and I know you're not a political guy, so I'm not trying to lead you into that kind of conversation, but um, sometimes I think that it, it doesn't matter what's true or how often we can try to tell people it's true. Uh, if they can dismiss it, they're going to. And, and I know that's frustrating to those of us that, that do value history and the examples right. thereof. Yeah, uh, 
I, I wish there was a magic wand that I could wave and this wisdom would be imparted to everyone um, and that they would be receptive of it. But the fact of the matter is that that's just not the case. You know, this, this story that we just recounted, uh, you know, I've, I've had it published on multiple different blogs online. It went in a print publication nationwide. It's been on a YouTube video viewed thousands of times. You know, you can lead a horse to water, but you'll drown him trying to make him drink. Uh, and, and that's kind of where we're at here. We've, uh, we, we can't stand on the necks uh, right at the edge of the pond as much as we might want to sometimes. It's so true. And there are so many um, unintended consequences of people ignoring history and um, either, either ignoring it in the sense that it's out there and they're not curious enough to find out or ignoring it in the sense that, well, yeah, I heard that, but whatever, I don't want to enact, act on it. Um, right. So many times when there are these unintended consequences that later people turn back around and go, oh, I didn't, I never thought about that. Uh, yeah. Being, being one of the, the impacts of like piling, you know, anti-gun laws on top of anti-gun laws. And that takes me to our next point, something that's going on in Australia. And you're such the perfect person to talk about this because you do have such a heart and mind for history and you do have such a heart for uh, museums themselves. As a matter of fact, you and I met at a museum symposium yes, the first we did. time because we're both understanding how important museums are to right preserving history and helping to tell our stories as people and as nations. And all of those stories in some way intersect with our technology, with our tools, and some of those tools, like it or not, happen to be things that launch projectiles, such as firearms. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. So so what is happening in Australia that has to do with gun laws and museums? So this is kind of a, a fascinating story because part of what we're going to talk about kind of rings true here. Uh, in November of 2017, the government in New South Wales passed a new regulation for museums that didn't get brought up. Uh, and brought to the knowledge of the museum workers in New South Wales until February of 2019. It went like a year and a half before they were even aware that the law had been enacted. Um, and and in, a, in a sense, that's kind of seems like we have some of that happen here. You know, laws are on the books and people are, are never made aware of the laws that are on the books until, oh my goodness, suddenly you're in violation of this law you knew nothing about. True. Yeah. So, uh, so November 2017, they put this new legislation in, um, and it finally comes to light, as I said, in February 2019, um, particularly at the Lithgow Small Arms Factory Museum. Uh, and they have discovered that the regulations that were enacted say that all pistols, self-loading long arms, submachine guns, and machine guns are now to be rendered permanently inoperable. So okay. now they have to 
take a piece of history and they have to do something to it to alter it in some way, which right there, if you're somebody that preserves historical artifacts, you're like, oh, you're doing what? Yeah, exactly. So previously, all they had to do was remove the firing pin. You know, and you and I know, you know, you take a firing pin out of the gun, it's not a gun, it's not going to go bang. Right. And so, uh, you know, miraculously, they were um, wise enough to only make it removal of the firing pin until this new legislation in 2017. Now they have to be permanently rendered inoperable mm -hmm. and get ready to cringe and have your skin crawl because this is what they have to do. And note, it's not you know, pick one of these and do it. It is everything on this list. So one, okay, insert, a, <laughs> insert a steel rod traversing the length of the barrel and weld it at the muzzle and the chamber. Weld. Weld, weld it. You said weld it. I said, I'm going to say it a lot more, unfortunately. And it doesn't uh, matter if this is something that a famous general had in no. his possession it doesn't matter no. if it's beautifully engraved it just, just stick a rod in there and weld it yep oh my and God. once no. you've welded a rod in the barrel then you have to weld the barrel to the receiver you have to remove the firing pin which used to be the only requirement and then once you've removed the firing pin now you have to weld the hole closed so that you can't insert the pin again Stop. Stop it. Wait, you went, you muted yourself somehow. That's how, that's how upset we're getting here. Because we're, <laughs> we're welding things that should never be welded. Oh, goodness. Am there I back? back? Okay. Okay. All so right. So let's, let's, let's recap. We'll go back. So first, you have to start by inserting a steel rod, traversing the length of the barrel and welding it in place. Then you have to weld the barrel to the receiver, remove the firing pin and weld the firing pin hole, remove all of the internal springs, weld in place all of the internal components, weld any bolts and external hammers in place, and weld the trigger in a fixed position. This, I mean, basically you've made just a chunk of metal that no longer resembles what it was previously and completely destroys the the value right now not everything yeah. is about financial value i understand that but the historical significance is now forever altered if these laws yeah. change back or if for some reason australia is like well let's just sell all these guns get them on some other continent or something they are worthless to anyone. Yeah, yeah I, when ridiculous rules. Yeah, and uh, I think the the folks at the Lithgow Small Arms Factory Museum summed it up perfectly. They said it'll render these pieces of history into metal blobs. Yes, and and that's exactly what it would do. And they've got pieces in their collection that are uh, prototypes. They've got pieces in their collection uh, from different military trials that were never adopted by the Australian Army. Um, they've got examples of, you know, just more modern everyday guns. You know, take, for example, a Smith & Wesson 500 Magnum revolver. 
that because of the gun laws there, the only place an Aussie can see that gun legally is in a museum and they would have to basically render it absolutely useless uh, in order for it to still be legal and on display there. But it gets worse. No, it does not. <laughs> it does. It does. Okay. All right. And Fine. It, I'll take a breath. It, I'll sit here. I will be in physical pain. Just know yeah. that. But go on. So it, it gets worse um, when it very well could have gotten better. So that was February of this year. Uh, and in the months between February and the end of August, uh, all of the folks at the museum there in Lithgow and at a variety of other museums uh, throughout Australia were working with the government there, trying to figure out how they could craft an amendment to this regulation um, that would still, you know, meet the flavor of the law that the lawmakers were trying to get across and yet still preserve the tremendous amount of history that is in those collections and only in those collections. Uh -huh. um, and for, for all their credit, the folks at, at Lithgow really thought they'd made progress. They'd met with uh, the governing bodies and, you know, they, they got an audience and they felt like they were being listened to right up until the amendment was released on August 30th. Uh, the problem with this uh, is that they now have finally determined uh, who exactly is making the determination on these guns and who has the final say uh, in order to have the, the, the firearm, the fire, excuse me, the museum firearms license there. And it has now been determined that it's up to the local police commissioner mm -hmm. to determine whether or not he's going to grant an exemption from having the prohibited pistols and other firearms permanently deactivated. Somebody so, who may or may not even fully understand the damage and the harm that he is doing to the history of his own nation. Right. Moreover, someone who, with a political agenda, yeah. um, you know, who may appreciate the history but not care for the politics of guns can simply say, nope, I'm going to override and we're not going to allow you to renew uh, your museum exemption. And it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking that you would give that kind of authority to yeah. one essentially irrelevant individual to this process. And um, somebody that it's going to change. I don't know how often they, you know, their police commissioners come and go. I don't know whether it's a, an elected office or if it's an appointed office. I don't know how that happens. But, you know, suppose that the next one comes along and has a completely different idea from all of this. There's nothing right. where she can possibly do to reverse this. Right. Uh, I just think it's, it's criminal to me. I, I, I can't yeah. wrap around it. Yeah. Well, and, and again, you know, to, to keep with the theme of, of what we have been talking about, it's government enacting laws without really understanding the repercussions. Um, you know, they, they have decreed that the commissioner can grant the museum exception uh, if, if he or she is satisfied 
that it's reasonable in the circumstances uh, and that it can be granted unconditionally or subject to conditions and can be amended and revoked. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of key words in there that have no definitions, such as reasonable, circumstances, granted, amended, revoked. They haven't defined what any of that means. Hmm. So who's defining it? Is it the individual commissioner each time? I don't have an answer because they don't have an answer yet either. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's creeping up on them imminently uh, as to what is going to have to be done to these firearms and these collections. Because if you take a firearms museum and turn it into a metal blob museum, right. I don't really want to go to a metal blob museum. Uh, do right. you? <laughs> and I love museums, but I'm not going to the museum of the metal blob. No. And so I'm sitting here and I'm picturing, um, I'm not an art aficionado, but um, somebody out there listening is. And so let's say that it's um, the David statue, or let's say that it's a a really famous uh, painter who has a, a beautiful and famous painting, but there's something that somebody finds lurid. Oh, there's nudity. We can't right. have that. Or there's some something on there that somebody decides, you know, symbolism nowadays is such a huge thing. That another subjective thing that people decide, uh, this is what I say that symbol means, and therefore it is now bad in any context. So they come along with a big old, like, house painter sloppy brush, right? right? And they just go slap, slap all over whatever the offending thing is on this priceless, not just in dollars, but priceless to the art world and the progression of art. Um, and culture in general. Culture, right. They just slap, slap it with paint so that it covers up something that for right now in this particular moment in time makes them feel better. They've done something permanent and, and something you can't undo. So if we put it in those terms, maybe other people out there listening could feel that internal angst and pain that we're feeling. And we're just because we're talking about guns does not make it any less egregious. Right. These weld, these, how many words, how many times did you say the word weld? Too many. (laughs) Yeah, That's a slap of that paint with the big old house painting brush, you know, the ruler for the wall, you know, take that to a Monet or something. Yeah. yeah. That would That's, make anybody cringe, but because we're talking about guns, people go, meh, you know, guns are bad anyway, so who cares? Right, yeah, it's it's as if someone finally said, you know what, that, that sly grin slash smirk thing that the Mona Lisa's got going on, that offends me. We've got to turn that into a frown. And her exposed hair, scandalous. Better put a beanie on her. Those are all the rage. And so now she's got this faceless expression and a frown and she's wearing a beanie. And in 2019, we feel better about that. Mm, I... Well, there's, there's no getting that back. You've now defaced the Mona Lisa. It, does it still exist? And that's, and that's the thing. Does it still exist? Sure. The Mona Lisa still exists, but it in no way, shape or form still represents what it once did. Same with this, uh, with these firearms. If you take this piece of mechanical art 
in a sense, mm -hmm. and weld up all the moving parts, well, what do you have? Again, we go back to the metal blob uh, right. statement again, that, that they had so accurately determined it. Um, and, and, and it, unfortunately, I think can, has the potential to go a step further because we know the issues that Australia has um, with gun control uh, in their country already. And so if this is what they are decreeing is to be done in museums, mm. collectors could be next. Mm. And yeah, so- I'm surprised I didn't start with collectors because you would think that museums themselves, and it does sound like they are standing up, but it, I would think that museums would have the power of the donors behind them, the power of um, just the fact that they are the keepers, right? They, they, are, um, they are the stewards of our memories and of our history. So sure. I'm, if, it's like if they don't have the, the chops to be able to push back on this, uh, collectors are, they're, it's already done. They just don't know it yet. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, and it, unfortunately, I think we'll get pushed even further because all of these egregious things that we've talked about having to be done to these firearms, you know, we're, we're dealing with what you and I consider to be modern firearms. Um, so it's important to note that true actual antique rifles in Australia are exempt from this at the moment. Again, it becomes that slippery slope. You know, if they say, hey, we like that we got all of these more modern guns turned into metal blobs, let's do it to the flint locks uh, and the match locks and the wheel locks. And uh, where, where does it end? I don't, I don't know, know that it does end. And, you know, again, what it does is it, it indicates that it's the tool that's bad. Like, like right. human beings would never harm each other if it wasn't for that tool. Like, are they taking the swords, right? The broadswords, right. are they chopping those into pieces or are they embedding them in some kind of, you know, encasement so that they can never be taken out with and have a sharp edge again? No, they're focused on this one particular tool, which right. the message that were it not for these tools, Mankind would just hold hands and sing Kumbaya into the sunset. And that is not true because for every time someone has misused a tool, right, of defense, a sword, a gun, you can cite at least one time that someone has used it to save lives. So, sure. you know, and then again, that's about the heart of the person and the intent of the person holding it. I know I'm preaching to the choir here about that. But it's just when we do extrapolate and we say, well, what if it was something offensive on a piece of art? Or what if it was the sword collection that they were doing this to? We would, we're like, that's stupid. Like nobody would do that. Right. Why do we not have that exact same reaction when it comes to firearms? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. Um, and that's, that is the question you know uh, and it's the one that you and I and, and everyone else in our like-minded community and in the museum community now we're all having to try to figure out 
what's next? Why are we having this reaction to this and not the other? You know, no one's saying you got to cut the strings on crossbows. Good point. Uh, you know, right. but, uh, file down those pointy arrowheads, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Better nap the tips right off of those, those arrowheads, you know? Um, oh man. So, I mean, is there any kind of a good outlook? How do you think that, I mean, if you, you don't have a crystal ball, but do you think that the curators there in the Lithgow Small Arms Factory Museum, do you think they're going to have any success being able to reason with the powers that be? You know, I, I don't know. Um, on the one hand, uh, you'd like to think that they might be open to reason. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they had from February to August and they did speak with the authorities and the authorities didn't listen. But, you know, we've we've now got something in this day and age that certainly previous generations didn't have. And of course, that's the Internet, you know, and, and 20 years ago, you and I would. Well, we wouldn't be sitting here having this video chat anyway. But but 20 years ago, we would have had no idea that this was going on in Australia in uh -huh. their museums. Uh -huh. um, but now it has been brought in front of a global audience. Uh -huh. um, and, and it has been brought to the attention of museum professionals uh, in firearms museums and otherwise worldwide. Uh, and I know that as part of this process, uh, there, there were a number of individuals who signed on uh, to, to a letter that was sent uh, to the government there in New South Wales, you know, petitioning from firearms museum curators across the world awesome. uh, to, to try to bring some awareness to this. Um, so, you know, it, it might be kind of corny to use the phrase, you know, the, the world is watching, um, but we really are. Uh, you know, you're in Arizona, I'm in Virginia. We've talked about all of this out in Wyoming at one time, you know, it's, we've brought it full circle and there's far more awareness of what's going on uh, and the repercussions that can be had uh, mm -hmm. at museums in the United States, in the UK, in the Netherlands. Uh, it, it could happen anywhere. It, it absolutely could happen anywhere. So that does give me hope that um, because the world has become somewhat smaller because of the digital age that we're, we're living in, and that we can conference call in this kind of way across states or across oceans, um, yeah. that, that, that can have a huge impact really either way, you know? Yeah. A bunch of people get together and are like, yeah, guns are bad. Agree with me? Yeah. Okay, good. You don't? Oh, delete. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But then knowing that like this museum symposium that we met at, uh, that it is a growing uh, group of people, a growing community, mm -hmm. and that even, I think I was there the second year that it, it existed, and yeah. there were already people there from the UK and from Austria, I believe, maybe New Zealand, I can't remember. So I think that that can only be good as well. Because Absolutely. the people sitting in that room, it's not like they're a bunch of, gun ladies and gun guys necessarily 
Some yeah. of them, maybe in any other context, would be like, yeah, I'm just, I don't care too much for this whole gun thing. But they're focused on the historical importance of yeah. securing uh, the historical items. And uh, that is encouraging to me that we haven't completely lost that where people are so divided on a topic like guns that they can't even, you know, find themselves in a conversation where they're like, no, this is, you know, outside there, maybe that's a gun I wouldn't care to own or have right. anybody else own. But in here, this item is part of my uh, collection, my um, cure, cure, what's the right word when you're inside of a museum? No, you were right. It's part of the collection. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right with that. And the museum community is by definition, it is a close knit, small community. You know, there's, there's only so many of us in the field. Um, and, and even globally, it is a close knit community and, and you're right. Uh, you know, whether, whether you like the object or not, it's in your collection and it's your duty as a museum professional to care for that object in the best way possible. You know, I've worked in collections uh, with beautiful, wonderful paintings. I, I'm really not that much of an appreciator of art. Um, like, eh. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I, I could take it or leave it, you know. But did I treat those pieces with the utmost respect and handling to ensure that they are available for future generations to appreciate? Absolutely, because that was my job. I love it. And that's how it needs to be moving forward. And we have seen that um, with the colleagues that you and I have both met working at museums in the United Kingdom and in Canada uh, and, and in other countries where civilian ownership is either prohibited or severely curtailed. They recognize the importance of the objects that they have within their care uh, and they know that if the public wants to see these things legally, this is the only way to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they understand that and they appreciate that aspect of the history. And that's what I think is cool about the museum community is that even if you personally don't have an appreciation for something, you appreciate that others appreciate it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it, uh, you know, the rising tide raises all ships or, or however that statement goes. And so uh, you, you preserve the Mona Lisa and the Flintlock, everybody benefits. So Absolutely. And just we'll start wrapping up here real quick. But, you know, going through the Cody Firearms Museum in, in Wyoming is such an experience that I would encourage anybody, even the most vehemently anti-gun human being that, that exists out there, walk through and understand how these pieces of technology evolved, the, the human ingenuity that mm -hmm. it took to improve them in the ways that they improve them and that you know so often it was because of battlefields and that if you can think about the the american lives right because we're american mm -hmm. we're united states citizens that these these 
you know, uh, what was his name? Jo- Joseph Belton's of the mm-hmm. world. Uh, whether he was just, you know, like a guy that loved tinkering or whether he truly was somebody who was like, look, this thing I'm building is going to save lives. Give me a chance and a bunch of money. Right. But, um, <laughs> they, you know, that, that what one person built, then somebody else could look at and go, Oh, well, what if we did this one thing to it? And then other artists came along and said, but what if we did this beautiful engraving on the outside and, you know, then people used those things and it sparked another, um, you know, idea in their mind that, you know, maybe was used in improving bicycles or typewriters or think of, and you would be able to think of more than I would, but like the Winchester um, uh, firearms brand, didn't they make all kinds of other things, not just firearms. Yeah, Winchester made a bunch of different things. Colt made a bunch of different things. Smith and Wesson made a bunch of different things. They did. Uh, Smith and Wesson did like toilet plunge levers and stuff at one point. You know, uh, skates, roller skates. One of them did. I right. I Winchester know. did roller skates. Yep, exactly. And and look at World War Two. You know, you get the 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 Singer sewing machine company making pistols and Remington Rand going from typewriters. And uh, so it's, it's all sorts of stuff that invention as, as a global uh, and universal concept, uh, all inventors are standing on the shoulders of the ones that came before them. Uh, You know, and you only have to, to look at, excuse me, you only have to look at one modern patent and go look and see all of the predecessors and patents that they cited in that, the stuff that on the surface doesn't even look remotely relevant, but you realize, oh, well, in order to make that one small part do this, it relates to that, and that's how that patent is applicable. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's all intertwined, and you get rid of that one corner piece, and it's like Jenga, and everything falls. And then you take us back to Australia, and the fact that everything's going to be, you know, welded and welded and welded so that people can't then deconstruct it and, and you know, future inventors and future generations of great minds can't then look at it and go, oh, I see what they were going for here, but what if I could do that? And then it pertains to something may not have anything to do with guns. They've taken, right. they'll be taking that piece away. And correct me if I'm wrong, but people go to museums all the time and ask for permission to interact with the items uh, so that they are, you know, thinking about inventions or, you know, even like the movies and stuff. And they're doing illustrations and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very common for people to consult with museums uh, to gain a better understanding on how things work. And a lot of museums have uh, what they call study collections so that they have examples that can be taken apart and worked with. And, you know, for example, the, the Institute of Military Technology down in Titusville, Florida uh, is run by Reed Knight, who runs Knight's Armament. Uh, and they've got a lot of the Eugene Stoner prototype parts uh, from the AR weapons that he was working on. And they routinely go through and take stuff apart in their collection to figure out how to improve the modern day knight's armament stuff that is helping the guys on the battlefield today. Yeah. And they're doing that because of a museum. Right. 
So it's, it's important, this stuff that we're talking about. Well, thank you so much for all the time you've spent with us, Logan. Um, thank you for having me. Out, how do people learn more from you? How do they use your mind that's just uh, crackling with historical knowledge? How do they follow your blogs? Um, all those things. Yeah, uh, the easiest way, the one-stop shop, if you will, uh, is highcaliberhistory.com. Uh, from there, you can find the blog, you can find the links to uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube channel, um, my Patreon page, you want to become a patron if you support the work that we're doing here. There's a lot of great perks uh, that, that you can get there, um, but it's all available at your fingertips at highcaliberhistory.com. Fantastic. Logan Medish of High Caliber History, thank you again so much. Thank you so much, Cheryl Todd of Gun Freedom Radio. Absolutely. And stick around because there is always lots more coming up on Gun Freedom Radio.